All right, we're continuing our series um, called Sexuality, Marriage, and the Bible. It is a mini-series spawned by several questions that were asked in our summer Bible series called uh, Bible Answers for Life's Questions. How, does anybody need a study sheet? You did not get one of our study sheets. If you'll hold your hand up, just keep it up for a second. Miss Sibley's got some. She's bringing them around. And uh, please make sure that you keep this sheet for next week. Uh, There are three main points. We're only going to do the first one today. The next two we will do next week. So um, make sure that you hang on to that. Bring it back next week so we can be greener in our class and not print as many pages off next week, hopefully. Okay? All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The lesson today is entitled The Sexual Crisis. How should a Christian respond to that? Uh, what we're going to talk about today is actually point number one in the, in the lesson entitled, What is the Crisis? When we talk about the sexual crisis, or as it's often referred to, the sexual identity crisis, what are we talking about? Um, what does the Bible describe as the crisis or the real issue that we're dealing with? Uh, the question that is being answered with this is, Why are we so hard on homosexuals? That was a question somebody in our class asked. Why are we so hard on homosexuals? So before we read the passage, let me break down the question so you understand how and why I'm answering it the way I am. First of all, the question was, why are we? Now, I'm assuming the we is referring to Christians. So in in, how we're approaching this, um, that's why... Next week, you'll see we're going to deal with how should Christians respond. Because I'm assuming that whoever asked this question was referring to Christians when they said, why, do, why are we so hard on homosexuals? The second thing they asked was, why are we so hard on them? Well, I'm assuming that what they're concerned with is our attitude towards them, not whether or not it's right or wrong. So that's also what I'm dealing with. And then... They said, why are we so hard on homosexuals? And let me just clarify, as you will see in just a minute. Homosexuality is one manifestation of a sexual crisis that we face in society today. It is not the crisis. As a matter of fact, when you deal with sexual identity, there are several things involved. There's homosexuality, which is primarily men and men. There's lesbianism, women and women. There's bisexuality. There is transsexuality. There is cross-dressing and a few others that are more scientific in nature than, than these. But these are the main ones. So when you talk about a sexual identity crisis, there's a lot of stuff involved. And if you go to any secular counselor, especially those, and my sister-in-law does this, she is a counselor in the Broward County School System down in Fort Lauderdale and deals with these type of things every single day. And a young teenage boy walks into your office, tears in his eyes, and says, I have affection and desires towards men. I don't like women. I'm being persecuted. What do I do? How do I handle this? How do I deal with this? And he's weeping. 
And she deals with it almost every day. So there is a crisis. There is an issue that Christians, whether they like it or not, we're going to have to learn how to confront this and how to handle not only the issue, but the people involved. So what we want to do today is we want to begin our process of understanding what the crisis is, and then next week, what is the solution, and how should a Christian respond. And uh, so I hope you'll hang in there with us. Don't miss next week. If all you get is this week, you're going you're gonna to miss the whole purpose of the lesson. So you need to come back next week because that is the key to everything. All right. Well, let's start today, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse number 9. We're going to talk about what is the sexual crisis. Verse number 9. Paul writes, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Pause right there. Here's a statement. Paul is rhetorically asking a question to these people. And he says, Do you not understand? As if to say, you ought to understand this. Do you not understand that the wicked, literally the unregenerate, people that are not saved, will not inherit? We don't have time, but there's a whole doctrine of inheritance that believers can rejoice in because when we get saved, We became joint heirs with Christ, and according to Peter, we have an inheritance reserved for us in heaven that will never go away. So the doctrine of our inheritance as believers is an unbelievable, joyful doctrine that you need to understand. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through that today because it's a whole series in itself. However, Paul says the unregenerate, the wicked, unsaved, do not get this inheritance. They don't inherit the kingdom of God. They don't inherit everything that goes along with it. They're not a part of the inheritance. Who's a part of the inheritance? The family of God. Because they're joint heirs with Christ. He is referring to people that are not a part of the family of God. Now, let's keep going. Look at the rest of the verse. Do not be deceived. Neither, now he's going to begin to describe outward manifestations of these people who are unregenerate. He is not saying, please understand me, he is not saying that if you commit sexual immorality or if you're a gossip or if you cheat, then you will not go to heaven. Because lots of us, after we got saved and got our inheritance, did some of these things. It's a part of battling the sin nature. So please understand, he is not saying that if you commit one of these things, even if you're saved, and that means, oh no, you lost it, you ain't going to heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He is describing the natural outward manifestation of what happens in an unsaved person's life. Those that do not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay. Now, look at how he describes them. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, 
nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now what is he saying? The wicked, the unregenerate, the unsaved don't get the kingdom of God. This is what those people are like. And then he reiterates again, they don't inherit the kingdom of God. So what we're talking about here are unsaved people and the outward manifestation of what their life looks like or could look like because this is what these people naturally do. Okay? So please understand, he's not saying if you do this, you don't go to heaven. He's saying people who are not saved, this is how they naturally act. Now, I want you to notice something here. He is describing sin. And um, we'll notice the very first thing he describes in verse 9 is sexually immoral. Okay, He also talks about male prostitutes, adulterers, homosexual offenders. So, so there's, our, there's our question. They're, they're in there. But notice this. He also says thieves. You ever taken something that didn't belong to you? You got a pen or a notepad at your home that your employer bought for you to use at work, and you figured, well, they won't miss this. You're in here. How about this? Nor the greedy. This is also translated covetous. You know what that means? Wanting more. Hmm. I'm in here. Drunkards. Slanderers. You ever heard the statement, if you don't get anything nice to say, don't say anything at all? That's a slanderer. The one who don't say anything nice. I think now we're all in here. Swindlers. Cheating people. You ever sold a car that had a bad alternator and you didn't tell the person that bought it it had a bad alternator? You know why you know it had a bad alternator? Because that's the reason you're selling it. It started to go out, and the guy at the mechanic shop said, you better change this alternator pretty soon. You know what you just did? You swindled somebody. How would you feel if they did that to you? These people don't inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what is my point? My point is, homosexuality is not the problem. Sin is the problem. There are three things that describe this crisis. I want you to look at them with me real quick and we'll be done. Number one, original sin. Original sin. I want you to take your Bible, turn with me to um, Romans chapter 5. Let me read you a verse here. Romans chapter 5, verse number 12. Everybody knows what Romans 3.23 says, right? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means we're all included. Everybody's a sinner. But look at Romans chapter 5, verse number 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Alright? This is what is known as original sin. There are those today that will argue there is no such thing. That you are born inherently good. Basically, perfect, though they won't say that. 
but that's what they mean. You were born perfect until you commit your first sin. Which, by the way, doesn't take very long. However, the reason you do is because of original sin. What is that? Well, the Bible says original sin. Sin came into the world through how many people? Somebody tell me. One man. By the way, who was that man? Adam. In theology, the sin nature that we possess, theologians call it the Adamic nature. It's just a big fancy word. It means it's Adam's fault we got it. That's what it means. Adam sinned. Therefore, every human being that has ever been born inherited original sin. We are all born sinners. That's why Paul can say in verse 23 of Romans 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. Now, I don't think there's anybody here today that would argue the point that you are a sinner. Oh, no, not me. I mean, I definitely can't. We all sin. We are sinners. Therefore, if the problem with the sexual crisis is sin, then are we included in that? Sure. Maybe our sin is not manifested in a sexual situation, but the real problem, sin, we are included in. What does that mean? That means I have the possibility of this becoming a specific problem for me. Because original sin is the issue. And everybody has it. Okay? Now, let me give you another passage. We won't read it. But Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 is the account of when original sin came into the world. I think we talked about it a couple weeks ago. But you remember when we were reading the account of how Satan deceived Eve and then Adam listened and they, they both committed sin and then they were hiding from God in the garden? You remember that? Do you remember when God found them and He said, uh, why are you hiding from me? What was Adam's response? Because we were naked and we were embarrassed. You know, there could have been a thousand different reasons why Adam could have told God he was ashamed. A thousand. And if you'll pardon me for being just frank, but the dude said, because I'm naked. Isn't it interesting, the very first realization of sin that Adam and Eve have after the original sin was a sexual issue. These bodies were created for something and something's going on. After I committed that sin, something in Adam's mind happened that caused him to think there's something not right about this. How interesting. By the way, it's never changed. Satan still uses the same methods. By the way, what did they immediately do in order to take care of the issue that was causing them shame? They covered themselves up. That was a natural instinct. 
They covered themselves up. So, what is the issue? What is this sexual crisis we face? It's sin. It's not homosexuality. That's just a small manifestation of the real issue. That's not the whole issue. Okay? Now, let's keep going. There's another aspect of this issue, this crisis, that we need to understand as believers. And that is, not only do we all have original sin, but number two, mankind battles with sinful desires every day. And that is true whether you're a Christian or not. Whether you're saved or not saved. Every human being battles with sinful desires. In James chapter 1 and verse 14, James describes how a human being is tempted to sin. And he says this, Every man, every human being is tempted when he is drawn away of his own evil or sinful desires fleshly desires and enticed. Then when lust conceives, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. So how are we tempted to sin? We are drawn aside. We are distracted by our own fleshly, evil, NIV calls it, sinful desires. Now here's my first question. According to the Bible, do human beings ever have desires that are sinful? Yes or no? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do those sinful desires go away when you and I get saved? Nope. Not according to Galatians chapter 5, where the Bible says the flesh and the spirit battle one another for control of our life. So those sinful desires don't go away. Now here's my point. If a human being can have a sinful desire, then that means there are some desires that are sinful and there are some desires that are not sinful. Paul said in Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Is that a sinful desire? Of course not. In Psalm 37 and verse 4, the psalmist said, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Are those sinful desires? Of course not. So there are good desires, sinful ones, and good ones. Okay? you got both. Therefore, I cannot determine right or wrong based upon the simple fact that I desire it. So what am I talking about? Here's a guy comes to a counselor and says, I desire men sexually. It's a desire. It's real. It's inside of me. I have it. I think it's genetic. I was born with it. It's not my fault. There's nothing I can do about it. Now, why is he making that assumption? Because he has the desire. Because it's present, he assumes it's natural and it must be okay. By the way, that's humanism. In its purest form. If a man wants it, man is his own God, so if man desires it, it must be okay. Is that true biblically? Of course not. Okay? Now, let's change the situation. We all kind of understand that. And we would say, well, 
I don't know. I, I think the Bible is pretty clear. Okay, let me give you another situation. I'm a man, and I tell you, I have a desire. I have a desire sexually for women, not men. I have that. I'm married. I got eight kids. It works good. I have it. Question. Listen to me. Don't worry, I'll hear about that later. For those listening, my wife is present. <clears throat> okay? Now, here, listen to me now. Stay with me. If I have that desire towards my wife, is that a good desire or a bad desire? It's a good desire. If I have that desire toward a woman that is not my wife, good desire or bad desire? Bad. But wait a minute, it's not my fault because I have that desire. So that makes it okay. You see how we get so confused? We want to take this guy over here who is a human being with a heart and a life who is struggling with a sinful desire, and it is, for another man. But it's not sinful because it's a man with a man. It's sinful because it's sexually immoral. It is not the way God intended for the sexual desire to be used. Hebrews 13, marriage is to be honored and the marriage bid undefiled. But whoremongers and the sexually immoral, God will judge. What is God's parameter? God says sexual desire is okay inside of marriage with a man and his wife. Period. It ain't that hard. Everything else comes under the other category of sexually immoral. Everything. By the way, notice, when God began the passage, go back to 1 Corinthians 6. In verse 9, He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Then go down to verse 13. Same passage, 1 Corinthians 6. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Then verse 18, same chapter, chapter 6. Flee from sexual immorality. So what is the issue? The issue biblically for a Christian is sexual immorality. It is not homosexuality. It is sexual immorality. What is immoral? Let me remind you of what we looked at a few weeks ago. Immoral is, here's the definition, the state of violating moral principles or one who does not conform to or obey standards of morality. Anybody who violates moral principles or does not obey a standard of morality is an immoral person. Now here's a question for us as a Christian. What is our standard of morality? Somebody tell me. The Bible. This is our standard of morality. So when do I become immoral? When I don't do what this book tells me to do. When I do not obey or conform to the commands of this book. How many different ways can I manifest immorality based on that definition? Thousands of ways. If I am envying is that immoral? Yes. 
It's not sexual immorality, but it is immorality. It is not conforming to God's standard of what is right. You see? This is important for us to understand this. Because this is how God looks at mankind. The Bible teaches us, in Romans chapter 5, that Christ died for the morally pure. Is that what it says? Of course not. Christ died for the ungodly. You know who Christ died for? Everybody that was immoral. You know who that was? Everybody. It was me. It was you. That's who He died for. That's who He wants to reach. And we're going to look more at that next week when we talk about how do we handle this. How do we approach this? And I personally believe, with all of my heart, as believers, we have totally approached these issues all wrong. Totally wrong. And we'll deal with that next week, okay? So, what is the crisis? The crisis is original sin, mankind's battle with his sinful nature, and sexual immorality. Now, let me show you two things in closing, real quick, about these sinful desires. These things take place in the lives of those that are saved and those that are not saved. Have you ever discussed an issue, talked about these type of things, with someone who was not saved, and the argument just went round and round in a circle and you never got anywhere? Okay? Um, try going into a court of law as an attorney and arguing a case without one common standard of truth. Do you know how criminals... get off or elude punishment because of glitches in the law. And an attorney who is very good at holding to the law. By the way, is that perfectly legal? Absolutely. It is the law. Okay. Now, when you and I have a discussion with somebody about spiritual truth and we do not share a common standard of right and wrong, you're never going to get anywhere. So how do you deal with a person like that? Well, we're going to talk about that next week. And there is a way to do it and a way to do it lovingly so that God can change not only their life but ours. And by the way, I believe both lives need to be changed in that situation, but we'll talk more about that next week. But let me show you something about an unsaved person and their understanding of spiritual truth. Take your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse number 9. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. Paul says, However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? That we may understand what God has freely given us. 
This is what we speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Look at verse 14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You know what God says? A person who does not have the Holy Spirit living inside of them not only doesn't accept God's principles, but they don't understand them. Well, I just don't understand that. What you say doesn't make sense. And you may hear those statements quite often if you're discussing spiritual things with an unsaved person. Well, how do you know that? Because God told us that's how they would react. That's why if you and I are trying to have this discussion with somebody who's not saved, you're never going to get anywhere. All you're going to do is create an issue. You're going to build a wall that may never be able to be broken down. By the way, how can that person ever come to the place where they do understand? What has to happen? They have to be saved. They have to get the Spirit of God inside of them so that the blinders are removed and they can understand. Who is the only person who can make that happen? God. God. So what is my job? What is my responsibility? We'll talk about that next week. Okay? Matthew 5.16 will give you a clue. But we'll talk about that next week. Alright? So, here's an unsaved man. Now, I want you to take your Bible. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Because I want to show you a passage of Scripture that is used quite often in dealing with the issue of homosexuality. And, and it's a passage, I think, that many times is either misused or misunderstood. But I, I want us to go through this because I want you to understand it. Because in dealing with this issue, you're going to be confronted with this passage of Scripture sooner or later. Okay, Romans chapter 1. And I want you to look with me. Um, let's look down at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Look at the next phrase. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Here again is that word wicked. Remember, the wicked do not inherit the kingdom of God. These are unsaved people. Unregenerate people. Okay? The Bible says the wrath of God is being revealed towards them. What does that mean? God is making known through the Scripture what is going to happen to people who ultimately die without Christ. And and we don't want that to happen to anybody. But He's making that known. So that's what He's talking about. But notice what these people do. These people, look at the last part of verse 18, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Okay, what's the truth? John 17, 17. Jesus said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Okay, so the word of God is the truth here. All right? These are people, not saved, 
They're being confronted with the truth. What do they do with it when they're confronted with it? They suppress it. The word suppress has many different aspects of its definition, but according to Webster's Dictionary, the number three definition in those seven or eight reads just like this. It's in your notes. To exclude from consciousness. To exclude from consciousness. So what are they doing? They're confronted with the truth, and they are excluding it from their consciousness. I don't want to think about it. By the way, do we ever do that? you got things in your life that you don't like to think about? Some of them we probably need to think about, but because they're painful or we don't like to think about it, we just, the moment it comes up, we exclude it from our consciousness. That's suppressing. That's what that is. Okay? It, it's not always a good thing. Now, in evil thoughts, it's a great thing. But in things we ought to be thinking about, like the truth, it's not a very good thing. Do we do that as Christians sometimes when God speaks to our heart? Sure we do. God points something out about our life that ought to change, and it's something that's really, really difficult to change. And sometimes what we do is we suppress it. We get it out of our consciousness. I don't want to think about it. And how do we suppress it? Well, the Bible says here they suppress it with their wickedness. I don't think about it. I just keep doing what I'm doing. Because when I'm involved in it and I'm in the middle of it, I'm not thinking about that. And that's how they actually get it out of their consciousness. They keep doing what they're doing. Okay? I want you to understand what kind of people these are. Because it makes a difference in what God's about to say. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world... Actually, back up. Look at verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. These are not people who don't understand who God is. They know who He is. They know what the truth is because they're suppressing it. So these, these are not people that have never heard anything. They know what's going on. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. What's the deal here? What's going on? They knew it. They understood it. Everything was there. They suppressed it. And even though they knew it, they didn't want anything to do with it. They deliberately rejected God's truth. Now, there's a process here. Their thinking became futile, literally foolish, unproductive. And their hearts started to become darkened. Um, Although, verse 22, they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now he's referring back to the nations that the Israelites lived around who used to have pagan worship with idols. That's what he's talking about. Verse 24. Therefore, because they did this, because they refused to accept the truth, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. God told them what the truth was. They suppressed it. They didn't want to think about it. They didn't want anything to do with it. So God allowed them to go ahead and do what they wanted to do. But what does he say is happening? This sexual impurity actually began to degrade their bodies. 
And by the way, is that not what sexual impurity does? It degrades you as a human being. It takes you from the level of being someone important to just being a piece of trash. That's what Satan wants. That's his desire. Why do you think Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about looking for people he can destroy or degrade? Let's keep going. Look what happens. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Isn't that what happened in the Garden of Eden? Eve exchanged what God told her to do for the lie that Satan told her. She said, I'd rather believe this because it's more suitable to what I want to do. That's how this happens. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, since they decided we'd rather live this way than to think about and do what God wants us to do, the Bible says He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Look at what happens when you get to this point. Now, first of all, please understand, this is not like they've never been taught or, or God's never tried to warn them or teach them. They have been, and over and over and over they suppress the truth. I don't want to do that. I don't want anything to do with that. I like my life the way it is. I'm going to keep doing it, the things I want to do. So they're suppressing it. Notice what he says, verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, Strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Look at the next phrase. They invent ways of doing evil. It just gets worse. Now, wait a minute. We're talking about homosexuals, right? We're talking about these really, really bad people, right? Wrong. What is the issue? The issue is sin. The issue is they don't want to do what God wants them to do. We want to come to Romans 1 and grab onto the homosexual verse and pull it out, and that's all Romans 1 is about. Well, let's keep reading. He's describing in verse 31 the same people. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Why do you suppose that they not only keep doing it, but they actually defend those that are also doing it? Because it makes them feel better. I mean, they're doing it too. So Now, here's, here's the point. I don't want you to think we're being just horribly awful. These people are us. They're us. 
We are sinners. We're going to close with this. I want you to take your Bible. I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to look at verse 9. Are these kind of people doing the wrong things? Sure they are. Are these kind of people headed for disaster? Sure they are. But what I want you to see is we are these kind of people. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. And that is what some of you were. And that is what some of you were. Some of you were sexually immoral. Some of you were idolaters. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were male prostitutes. Some of you were homosexual offenders. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were greedy. Some of you were drunkards. Some of you were slanderers. And some of you were swindlers. That's what you were. What happened? Next week, we're going to look at verse 11, and God's going to tell us what the solution is. If some of these people were homosexual offenders, sexually immoral, evidently, according to Paul, they're not that way anymore. That tells me two things. Number one, there is a solution. And number two, there is hope. If it's genetic, there is no hope. You can't change genes. If it's not your fault, there's nothing you can do about it. If it is sin, and I know that sounds horrible, and sin is a horrible thing, it sent Jesus to the cross. But if it's sin, there's an answer. There's hope. Joy can be brought into the life without degrading yourself. So here's the point, and we close. We're all sinners. No matter what way our sin shows up in our lives, and there are thousands of ways, we're all sinners. And we all need God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. And thank God, there was a time, as far as I know, in all of our lives where we got that. There are millions of people outside this room who need the same thing we got. They just don't have it yet. So what is the solution? And how do we handle it so they can get what we got? That's what we're going to talk about next week. Okay, Father, thank You for Your mercy and Your grace that delivers us from sin. Thank You for forgiveness and love that is far beyond anything we can really comprehend. I pray that You will put that love in us. That our light will so shine before other men 
that they will see our life and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Lord, use us this week to be a help and a blessing to someone who is hurting and to show them there's hope. In Jesus' name, amen. See you, everybody. Have a great week.